Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening, where we are set to continue our study into the book of Exodus. We are in chapter 17, moving along here. In chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, we, well, (laughs) read of more complaints, more grumblings, more murmurings, and like last chapter, more of God coming through for His chosen people. So after enduring the, the searing heat of the desert of sin, the people of Israel traveled as the Lord commanded them, and they stopped and made camp where but in Rephidim. Okay, Rephidim. The Israelites were in Rephidim thirsty. They were hungry in chapter 16, and now they're thirsty. And so they did what they do. Complain to Moses, who was their leader, give us water to drink. And what did Moses say? Why do you continue to quarrel with me? Clearly, Moses was growing impatient with their grumbling, and he did not want them to make the Lord angry. Huh? I get it, right? I get it. What did he ask? Why do you put the Lord to a test? True to Israelite form, this question, this response of Moses did not satisfy the people's resentment. They said to Moses, why did you ever make us leave Egypt? Was it just to have us die here of thirst with our children and our livestock? At this point, Moses becomes discouraged, huh? The people he loved were thirsty, and he had no water to give them. He also knew he had followed the Lord's directions. So what was he to do? He cried out to the Lord for help, asking that question again. What shall I do with this people? A little more and they will stone me, right? Of course, the Lord was not going to let anything happen to Moses or his people. He had led them from their slavery in Egypt, and he was bringing them to a promised land that would be their own. When they were hungry, he sent them quail and manna to eat. Now that they were thirsty, he was going to give them water and more demonstration of his love and his power. And so what did he say to Moses? Go over there in front of the people, along with some of the elders of Israel, holding in your hand as you go the staff with which you struck the river. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock in Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will flow from it for the people to drink. Moses went to find his staff, and he called the elders of, his, of the people to join him by the rock that the Lord had indicated. And what did he do? He said a prayer. He said a prayer. So before he grabs this staff, before he strikes the rock, he first prays. He first prays because Moses knows down deep that all good things start with prayer. So he said a prayer, 
And then he struck the rock with his staff as the Lord had instructed him. And immediately fresh, cool water flowed out of the rock. My friends, this passage that comes to us from Exodus chapter 17, verse 6, I think beautifully anticipates the cross in more than one way. And really the whole of this narrative anticipates the cross in more than one way. Recall that Jesus himself is the foundation rock of the new church. The rock the builders rejected, which became, what does Paul say in his letter to Ephesus? The chief cornerstone to the new church. And of course, from this stone, from this rock, waters would flow. What do you mean by that, Joe? Well, (laughs) there is Christ on the cross, and what shoots forth from the side of Christ, but the waters of new life. Isn't this what he promised the woman he met at the well? Huh? I will give you a spring of living waters. And no doubt what he meant were these living waters that would flow from his side on the cross, which of course signify the waters of baptism, the waters of life. What's more, my friends, in chapter 17, We also have this language of the people of God being what but thirsty. And in this, how can we not think of another very important word and moment on the cross in what has come to be known as his fifth word or his fifth famous saying on the cross, I thirst. Those words that speak to, among other things, his thirst for souls, of course. Now, my friends, within the Catholic faith, we have a saint who has all but become synonymous with these words, I thirst, and that is St. Teresa of Calcutta. So I wanted to briefly speak to her in light of our topic this evening. We are hearing the language of thirsting. We are hearing the language of uh, flowing waters. How can we not think of just not Christ on the cross, but more recently, St. Teresa of Calcutta? You know, when visiting a chapel of the Missionaries of Charity, the religious order that St. Mother Teresa founded, one might be immediately struck by the simplicity, indeed the austerity, of the sacred space. I had the opportunity to be in the company of the Missionaries of Charity in both Tijuana and Washington, D.C., and in both cases, my friends, I will tell you, while it was profound for many reasons— among those reasons certainly was just being in that simple chapel and seeing those words, I thirst. It's interesting, if you're to go into the chapels that belong to the missionaries of charity, to say it is a chapel of simplicity and, and austerity is, is to some degree an understatement. There are no chairs, there are no pews, there, there are no kneelers. The sisters take their shoes off before entering the chapel and sit or kneel on the bare floor. Typically, there are no ornate pieces of of religious art, just a gold tabernacle behind the altar and a statue of Our Lady in a corner. The image that stands out most is a large crucifix behind the altar 
And as I had just hinted at, the stark words painted in bold black capital letters on the wall alongside it, I thirst. Mother Teresa said that those words in the chapel, again taken from Jesus' words from the cross on Good Friday, were a constant reminder of the purpose of the missionaries of charity. In one entry, she said, We have these words in every chapel of the MCs to remind us what an MC is here for. MC, of course, standing for Missionary of Charity. To quench the thirst of Jesus for souls, for love, for kindness, for compassion, for, and I love this, delicate love. Ever since her call to serve the poorest of the poor, as she would like to put it, in 1946, Mother Teresa insisted that the missionaries of charity were founded to do one thing, satiate the thirst of Jesus. Those who, dare I say, are living in the wilderness of loneliness, the poverty of loneliness, the poverty of the absence of love. St. Mother Teresa of Calcutta also included this statement, I thirst in the founding rules for the new religious order. She states, The general end of the missionaries of charity is to satiate the thirst of Jesus Christ on the cross for love and souls. We say this, what does this mean? To satiate the thirst of Jesus. Throughout the ages, men and women have expressed the human person's thirst for God, right? This is a great theme within the whole genre of spiritual theology and just more generally relationship with God, right? Certainly, we have this echoed in Psalm 42, as a heart longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for thee, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I love that passage. How about the first beatitude? The beatitude that, speaking of chief cornerstones, is the chief cornerstone to the whole Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is a state of life. Blessed are those who long for God the same way our lungs long for air. This is what Jesus wants us to see. We have that phrase from the Catechism, paragraph 33, one of my favorite paragraphs, which teaches that the human person has longings for the infinite, which only God can fulfill. And certainly, how can we not speak to St. Augustine's Confessions? where he says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. You see, my friends, the tradition often has emphasized our thirst for God. But Mother Teresa focused on God's thirst for us. And the way she expressed it was really revolutionary. The way in which God would thirst for us. So yes, we are called to thirst for God, but God thirsts for us. You've heard me say it before, kind of as an overarching principle to our relationship with God and spiritual theology, that in the end, God's deepest desire is that we desire God as much as God desires us. Mother Teresa sees Jesus, I thirst, as a very personal statement spoken to each individual today and at every moment of every day. Mother Teresa says Jesus is constantly awaiting our response to his thirst. Near the end of her life, 
in a letter to all the missionaries of Charity Sisters, she made a passionate appeal to draw closer to the thirst of Jesus and take his statement, I thirst, more seriously in their daily lives. If we are to take anything, it is to remember that this I thirst is something much deeper than just Jesus saying, I love you. It's that, but it's more. Until you know deep inside that Jesus thirsts for you, you can't begin to know who he wants to be for you or who he wants you to be for him. So then what specifically is Jesus thirsting for in us? Well, he longs for our love, our attention, our ardent devotion, the total entrusting of our lives to him. On one occasion, reflecting on Jesus' words from the cross, Mother Teresa said, At this most difficult time, he proclaimed on the cross, I thirst. And people thought he was thirsty in an ordinary way, and they gave him vinegar straight away. But it was not for that thirst. It was for our love, our affection, that intimate attachment to him, and that sharing of his passion. Mother Teresa made Jesus' statement, I thirst, so personal that she told her sisters to imagine Jesus saying those words directly to them. She even encouraged them to put their own name before I thirst. And hear Jesus saying, for example, you know, uh, Sister Victoria, I thirst. We can do the same. Can we not put ourselves in the silent presence of God? Maybe in a quiet place at home or possibly if available, in front of the Blessed Sacrament at church. Put yourself in front of the tabernacle. Don't let anything disturb you. Hear your own name and then say, I thirst. Maybe meditate upon the importance of thirsting for purity, poverty, what it means to listen to God's will, what it means to give not a half heart, but whole heart, full of not a love of 50%, but 100%. He desires total surrender. And ask yourself the question, are we living a deeply contemplative life? No doubt this is a question I have to constantly ask myself. (laughs) So it is we can, my dear friends, begin to satiate God's thirst for our love by being generous with Him, by giving Him attention throughout our day, by spending more of our lives with Him in prayer. Mother Teresa also taught that we satiate Christ's thirst by loving him and our neighbor. Those people he places in our lives, especially those in most need of our care and our attention. Most of all, of course, Jesus thirsts for our lives to be completely surrendered to him, right? This is what we have been touching upon. He ardently desires that we be intimately attached to him, in Mother Teresa's own words in such a way that we will not thirst for anything in this world that will lead us away from him, away from the only true living fountain of life. So this satiating Christ's thirst entails more than mere avoidance of sin. It involves, again, a total yielding of our lives to him truly pursuing his plan in our lives. He thirsts for our entire lives to be surrendered to him so that they may be used for his purposes. Now, today is the first Thursday in 
Lent. So this is quite timely that we are talking about the importance of thirst, huh? Now maybe we are someone who is uh, hesitant. Maybe we are afraid to entrust ourselves totally to him. Maybe we cling on to our own plans. Jesus waits for you. And as he does, he continuously says, to you, to me, I thirst. One caveat from Mother Teresa's life exemplifies this point. She once told a religious, apparently someone who was hesitant to take a certain next step of faith in walking with the Lord, that Jesus has a deep and personal longing to have you for himself. She said, let him do it. <laughs> let him do it. So like this religious, we too face maybe moments when the Lord is inviting us to do something difficult, to step out into the unknown. The good Lord, my friends, wants to act in our lives, but maybe we, in our fear, sometimes hesitate or even turn our backs on the path where he is leading us. Mother Teresa inspires us in those moments to consider our life choices in the context of Jesus' thirst, as opportunities to satiate his thirst for our love. So the question is posed, have we experienced his thirst? God is thirsting for you and me to come forward to satiate this thirst. This is what Mother Teresa wanted us to see, St. Teresa of Calcutta. Amen? Amen. Now, this whole discussion of thirst in many ways sets up our next brief reflection on chapter 18. There is a term which is, maybe term's not the the right word, but uh, reality that is being lived more and more today. A reality that depicts a problem that is becoming more widespread. And that is burnout. You see, burnout happens when someone strives to meet impossible expectations and demands. Failure to accomplish these expectations and demands is, by some, believed to prove one lazy or even a failure. Burnout occurs when, out of exhaustion and frustration, one loses all hope of meeting the standard which is imposed on them, either by oneself others, or or both. Often, burnout leads to the drying up of one's ministry. In chapter 18, verses 17 and following, we have what I might suggest to you as a pretty important response from Jethro to Moses. Jethro, of course, is Moses' father-in-law. Jethro offers up some words of advice to Moses after it appears that that Moses is probably stretching himself too thin. Yeah, I was recently asked, are there lessons to be learned from the Old Testament? Well, if you have been with me in my study, just not in this book, the book of Exodus, but also our, what was it, 88 program study on the book of Genesis, I think I said it 10 times over on every page of the book of Genesis, as well as the book of Exodus, are there lessons to be learned that can be applied to life today, right? Well, my dear friends, I suggest to you that you have a very important lesson to be had in chapter 18. 
Let us jump to verse 17 in Jethro's words to Moses. This is, again, chapter 18, verse 17 and following. What you are doing is not good. (laughs) That's Jethro. What you are doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. And why was I talking about burnout? Because this is Jethro's message. Don't get burned out, right? He goes on in verse 18. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice. And may God be with you. I love that. Listen to the advice that I'm about to give you and may God be with you. That in of itself, I think, is a great lesson when we fraternally correct our brothers and sisters in Christ. We fraternally correct and say, yeah, God be with you. So Jethro goes on, you must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain and, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases, they can decide for themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this and God so commands, you'll be able to stand the strain and all these people will go home satisfied. I mean, does it get any more practical than that, right? And I also love that that line, In the difficult cases, yeah, take those up. But in the simpler cases, they can handle those, right? I mean, this could have been said today, yesterday, or the day before in our various circumstances and trials that that need, you know, prudential decision-making. My dear friends, in chapter 18 of the book of Exodus, Moses was dangerously close to burning himself out when his father-in-law really came to his rescue. The great chief mediator of the Old Testament had someone mediating (laughs) for him. And I love it. Maybe what appears on the surface to be the insignificant visit of a relative is really a divine provision to deliver Moses. Not, my friends, from the wrath of Pharaoh or from the attack of the Egyptian army, but from himself. You see, as Jethro himself put it, Moses was wearing himself in the Israelites out. Thanks to the common sense of a wise father-in-law, Moses was delivered from his own destruction. The burnout which results from a distorted perception and that all-too-demanding ministry that so many of us might fall into. As we read in chapter 18, Moses believed that every request for his help made the matter his responsibility. When asked why Moses handled matters as he did, Moses responded, in effect, I am doing this because the people have asked me to do it. Undoubtedly, Moses was a kind, caring, and compassionate man. I believe that the Israelites felt this way as well. No wonder they wanted to take their problems to Moses, right? Moses would have found it hard to refuse to help anyone who asked for it. He simply fell into the trap of assuming that every need which he became aware of was his responsibility to meet. Moses was running himself ragged because 
he had not yet come to grips with his heir, which, if we could simplify, is making the assumption that every good is a willed good. I think the trap that we all fall into. But if we pray first, maybe if Moses prayed like he did in chapter 17, he would have been able to say no. But this is why we are grateful for Jethro's mediation, his divine intervention, dare I say. Moses seemed to assume that that because people came to him personally for help, it was his responsibility to help them personally. In answer to Jethro's question, Moses explained that he judged the people from dawn to dusk because they came to him for help. Moses assumed that when there was a need, it was his personal obligation to meet it. In effect, Moses, my dear friends, was not really leading at all. In that, he was unwilling to refuse any appointments. He was unable to make the distinction between a good and a willed good. And certainly what could have helped here, well, what did Jethro say? Involve others in meeting the needs of others, right? We will experience burnout if we do not pray as we ought and discern so as to better understand what we are to do and not to do. And specifically in this case, in this chapter, maybe how to better delegate. If you were someone who was opposed to delegation, read chapter 18 carefully huh? and be mindful that it is good to delegate and even better to first pray, discern, to then make the decisions you need to make in how to delegate. To neglect prayer is to neglect ministry. Because to neglect your conversation with God is to have what you do dry up. Because there will be no living waters. Jesus thirsts for your soul. And as you receive his living water, become water for others. Amen? Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.